Okay, excellent. We have uh, Mr. Clarkson on the line. Uh, let me see if I can hear him. Let me mix you up there. Can you hear me, Jim? It sounds really clear to me. Okay, good. Uh, there we go. Uh, this is a... Um, I am broadcasting this live, though it is not uh, officially a live show, because usually I do that on Sunday nights. Uh, let, let me do the... Um, well, actually, Jim was just getting off the phone with somebody, and he said, what did you say you had to, to steer the conversation so you, get, you had to get... Uh, Sort of tell them to get off the phone now because you got something to do. Well, you just want to be tactful. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I want to keep it reasonable, but there's an awful lot going on right now in my life. <laughs> yes, I know. I've I've heard a bit. Have you ever heard my show there, Jim? No, I'm afraid I haven't. No, that's okay. Most people haven't. <laughs> it's just the way the show is. <laughs> I certainly had heard of your book, Project Beta. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, no, I love that book. Really? Yeah, because if anybody knows anything about me, usually it's for that book or Weird California. Uh, within UFO, it's for the um, for Project Beta. Um, to some very lesser extent, some of, uh, to a couple of my other things. Uh, well, now you've got me intrigued because I'm from California. I'm going to have to check that book out, too. Oh, okay. Also, I don't know what experience you've had with these interviews. It sounds like you're a seasoned professional, but on this show, you you are free to say uh, whatever you want for as long as you want and ask me questions if you like. I don't I don't mind that at all. That's fair, and I'll try not to get the FCC involved. Eh, the FCC doesn't even care. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, for you... And I've been doing this for a lot of guests. I will play the uh, anti-ETH intro and see if, see if you can hear it. There we go. Whoops, that's not it. That's the that's music I was playing, which is beautiful. It's uh, 1950s experimental piano music. No, the, the whole extraterrestrial thing is not, uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain away from ideology we're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star that may very well be true but we have not done the basic work i have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um comes from some sort of domain of pure information. And the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that, uh, that we inhabit the domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, well conditioned here? Yes. future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places, 
My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio Mysterioso. That's the crazy uh, show introduction. Do you know what movie that's from there, Jim? Not exactly, but I love it. <laughs> it's Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh, that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that one. It uh, was so bad, it was good. Yeah, well, it's, it basically um, it let me realize that, uh, I don't know, I guess you can, even if you're terrible, you should be, you should be out there doing things. Um, because at some points it's going to make a difference to somebody, and if not, at least it'll be funny. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, Tim Burton movie with um, the late Martin Landau, rest in peace, was uh, captured what I thought of Ed Wood and his whole thing perfectly. Did you see that one? Yes, I have, yeah. and I loved Martin Landau. He was. I was so sad to hear about his passing. Yeah, a lot of people were. What didn't somebody pass away? Uh, George Romero, like within about a day or so of it. Maybe oh it was yes, the same day. Yeah, uh, horror master George Romero. Anyway, um, this is a different kind of horror. It's Radio Mysterioso, and um, we're here with uh, James Clarkson, who I met fortuitously enough, I guess you'd say, at um, the Roswell uh, shindig a couple of weeks ago. We went to dinner. Um, Peter uh, Peter Robbins uh, invited us to dinner. I said, Peter, where can we have dinner? And James and his wife were across the table from me, and we started talking. And we found out, uh, one, that I had known about him for years but didn't really know. Did you see that picture I put up, Jim? Of I've got a picture from the 2009 Crash Retrieval Conference. But I found a picture, and I'm sitting right next to you. Wow. I need to see that picture again. I'll send you that picture. I'm going to use yeah. it as the picture for this um, for when I post the show. <laughs> that brings back great memories. Did you? You were speaking at that, right? Yes, I I was at the last three UFO crash retrievals conferences, and I I presented at the last two of them. I was very sad when that conference did not continue. Yeah. I thought that was a terrific conference. I really had a lot of fun at that conference. Um, I spoke at it once. I wasn't speaking in 2009, but since I had been a speaker, I think at the second or third or something, they let me into the party. So there's the, the picture has uh, – who's in that picture? James Carrion, mm -hmm. Nick Redfern, Linda Howe, Richard Dolan, Bob and Ryan Wood. There's a couple others I can't think of right now. And you and me sitting down in the front. Well, th that was such a great conference because, for one thing, I really liked the kind of speakers that they had in general. And it was – they put it in Las Vegas, which is a place that a lot of people can get to. Yeah. But they did not put it at a brand-new venue. Yeah. So the hotel rooms were cheap, but they were really nice. Yeah. And every, all the accommodations were great. Yeah, I remember having a. Uh, they gave me a pretty nice room when I was there speaking. I, I was really happy. It was uh, was it in Vegas or Henderson? It was in Vegas. It was just off the Strip. It was at the Tuscany. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. The one I went to, the first, well, the second one or whatever, it was in it was in Henderson actually. 
in in another hotel, which was also very nice. I think it was newer than the than than the uh, Tuscany, actually. I don't remember, but they they always treated you nicely, and I did like the speakers there. Peter Robbins gave a really good talk on James Forrestal the year I was there. I think right before me. But on to business. Uh, I met Jim uh, at Roswell. He said he had just started reading UFOs Reframing the Debate, and he, you said it was giving you hope for the future. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is well, It's nice kind there. of like finding an oasis in the desert. That's great to hear. No, it's true. I've, I've been I, – over the last couple of years, it all started for me early in 2015. I've been going through this process of becoming more and more – disenchanted with I guess what I would call establishment ufology and unfortunately I have to say MUFON in particular because that was the organization that I was loyal to for the better part of 30 years that was uh, one of my first questions Ah, well maybe it was my second question the first one was what's your background Um, people really don't know who you are or what you've done if they haven't if they don't know about you what is your background Well, I guess the best way to describe it is my life has gone on two parallel paths. (laughs) At a a very early age, I decided that I wanted to be in law enforcement. So one of the things I guess you learn as you get older, at least one aspect of life that's most interesting to me is you really do get what you really wish for. So I ended up doing a career as a policeman, although I came out a child of the 60s. San Francisco Bay Area, there was a lot of roller coaster in my life that I went through. <laughs> I bet. I ended up joining the Army after I thought that was the last thing I would do. <laughs> Mil- military police. Vietnam was winding down. They weren't sending anybody anywhere. They had no money. So I ended up going to Fort Gordon for MP school. Mm-hmm. I went to Fort Lewis, Washington. And I was very fortunate because I got put into a group called military police investigations. I never wore a uniform for like two years. Lucky you. That I was in. Yes, it was, it was great. And I learned a lot. I got out. I had a number of jobs. I ended up in Aberdeen, Washington. I had a full 20 year career. I spent uh, the last 10 years as a sergeant. I wore a whole bunch of hats. I've been a detective sergeant, supervised a fatal accident team, I was in charge of field training officers. I've been a patrol sergeant, a detective sergeant. I've kind of done a whole lot. I got out of that after an injury. I became a child abuse detective for two years, except they barely made payroll. I moved to Olympia, Washington, the state capital where I am now. I spent 10 years as a fraud investigator for the Washington State Department of Licensing, I reached retirement age. Okay, that's one track. Track two is right. back. I've had a lifelong interest in UFOs. In 1987, I joined the Mutual UFO Network. Actually, I joined it because of a business card that I saw on the military police desk <laughs> at Fort Lewis. I was up there talking to the desk sergeant one night, and I looked down. He had a big ple- piece of plexiglass. And all these business cards underneath, you know, who who are you going to call? Yeah. And one of the cards said National UFO Reporting Center. Ah. And I said, Sarge, what's that? And he said, that's where we report UFOs. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's a little different. Not what I expected. 
And I remembered the number when I got out. And of course, I got out in like 77. And it wasn't until 1987 that I called that number. A man um, named Robert Gribble answered the phone. He was the founder of the National UFO Reporting Center. He was a retired Seattle firefighter. When he got too old to do it anymore, he wanted to walk away. He passed the torch to Peter Davenport, and that's a name ah. that you know many people know, and right. I'm proud to call Peter a good friend. I uh, Eventually, I worked at MUFON in Washington State. I uncovered a hitherto not well-known UFO crash retrieval case in Westport, Washington, and I actually have written a, a book about that, a, a short report on the entire event. And along the way, a lady introduced herself to me. And I guess I should say that over the years, I became more and more involved in public education on the subject of UFOs. I don't try to tell people what to believe. I just try to get people to ask the questions. Yeah, There's I a lot going on here that's worth studying. It still is a great mystery, and it fascinates me. I also agree that there are many more possibilities than the extraterrestrial hypothesis. The truth is going to be a lot stranger than we can even imagine. This is good to hear it coming from somebody who's actually been, I guess, in the trenches, um, interviewing people, following up cases, and doing what MUFON, at least they used to do, um, for years, because... It you know I I have I haven't really done any gone out in the field and talked to people and done an investigation. I was in Mufon. I joined about a year after you. <laughs> okay, um, I was in for about two years and I got no support. No, nobody would call me with any cases. Nothing. Um, although they were happy to take my money. So after about a year or two, I just said, "Well, then forget it." Um, and I didn't re up. But um, the fact that you have done this and you you stuck it out for so long and have kind of come to some of the same conclusions I have just from other researchers reading the literature and also actually, yes, talking to people, but not, you know, in an informal way. Uh, it's actually heartening for me to hear that you've kind of come to the same conclusion. Well, what do you think is what, what do you think people are looking for? Uh, what, what do you think causes the reports? What do you think's behind it? Or do you refuse at this point to say? I, I like to use the NHI perspective, non-human intelligence. Uh -huh. I'm convinced that there is some sort of non-human intelligence operating in our realm. What it is, where it comes from, I don't know. But there are too many extremely credible people who have had extraordinary experiences to just dismiss this. You know, I, I've right. known people who put their whole career on the line. People, you know, one person I can think of in particular who was willing to trust me to investigate his UFO sighting and to know what he was doing at the time. And I was able to confirm on with uh, radar data that there was indeed something in the air that reflected radar that did not have a... Um, did not identify itself. Mm -hmm. And I also was able to confirm the F-15 going through the air on exactly the same path as the UFO before it mysteriously disappeared. You no, know, and, and so that's just one of many. And 
there are numerous examples beyond the cases that I've investigated. I mean, it goes on and on. There's too many people having these experiences. But we have dismissed on a public level, you know, we've we've injected the ridicule factor. We've uh, made it so that people who are involved in UFOs have little or no credibility. Of course, I have to say in all fairness, uh, <laughs> we, we blame the government and the men in black for tearing apart ufology when actually a lot of ufology does a pretty good job at destroying itself. Right. Yeah. One of and, the quotes in Project Beta is Uf UFO researchers are perfectly capable of disinforming themselves. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and it is so hard to find the truth in all of this. And yet it's there. I, if I had my favorite image of what it's like to be a long-term UFO researcher, I've got this one PowerPoint slide that shows this crusty old gold miner standing in a creek, <laughs> looking up at the camera with a gray beard and no haircut and dirty clothes, and he's got his little gold pan. And that's what it feels like to be a long-term <laughs> UFO researcher. Because... You, you spend your time standing in cold water. You've got mud and gravel. You're thoroughly miserable most of the time. But every once in a while, you get gold in your pan. And every once in a while, you get, you get this feeling of certainty that you're not far downstream from the mother load. And so you think, I got to keep going. I have to keep doing this. And a lot of times you really can't figure out why. <laughs> what do you think that mother load might be? That Whatever the source of that intelligence might be? Yes. Is that what you're talking about? Okay. Childhood's end. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. In other words, mankind grows up and we become part of some greater whole. And God knows, I don't want to say Galactic Federation. <laughs> Especially not in the current context of the MUFON Symposium being over. Yeah, well, that's something I wanted to get into, too. Do you want to talk about your long journey towards uh, where you are now, or do you want to be topical with the MUFON conclave this weekend? I did not go. I really don't know anybody that did, and I haven't heard much about it, except for there was a bit of, uh, what, conflict? Which I knew there would be. I, all, the behind-door stuff, I'm, I'm sure, was uh, on fire. Did oh, you God, I hope it? so. No, oh. I haven't. My intelligence agents have not reported back to me yet. I've had I'm one. expecting to be updated shortly. I've had one, and they said that there were some fires, but that I don't even think they were put out. They were just allowed to burn, and then the firemen who were supposed to put it out ran out the door, basically. Well, that wouldn't surprise me because I, I, I guess the biggest surprise for me, there's been, there have been several, rather than discuss my own situation, which I'm willing to do. But the two biggest surprises for me in the last few months were the sudden resignation of Rich Hoffman mm -hmm. and the sudden, very recent resignation of Robert Powell. That's right. And this really surprised me. Rich Hoffman was with MUFON since 1969 when it started. Uh -huh. Oh, you should describe who these people are, too. As, as, well, as Rich we Hoffman on. has been a, a state director for many years. Back east, I, I forget which state, but he's been loyal to MUFON for many years. He's been a big contributor. Uh, he was basically part of the inner circle in MUFON when being in the inner circle 
was not quite as negative or as strange as it has become now. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he's always been a good guy, uh, uh, somebody who unified people and made them feel better about being involved in ufology. And, you know, he was, he was a stabilizing influence in MUFON as a whole, a very positive man. Right. Then we have Robert Powell, who actually has a strong scientific background. I believe he's, uh, his biography is on the MUFON website. I'm sure they haven't had time to erase him from the history of ufology quite yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what they do. When, when some important person quits MUFON, they pretend like you were never there. You know, and, and it, yeah. it's very Soviet. Yeah, when the, exactly. When, when you're gone, the secret police take away all trace of your existence. <laughs> I, I know it's I maybe a little hyperbole, but it is true. They uh, they just act like you were never there. No one talks about you. No one acknowledges your accomplishments. You're just gone. Yeah, well, and that's kind of unfortunate. Unless you're in the inner circle and you have a lot of money, they erase you off of everything, but they keep you in the organization. Well, that's what in the case of Mister Ventry, that is apparently true. Right. They have just quit, and in particular. Uh, Robert Powell quit right before the symposium started. Mm -hmm. And I, I was totally bowled over because here in my email inbox is an email from him explaining that he has quit, expressing sympathy for my resignation, hmm. and explaining that he had tried to oppose the theme of this year's symposium on the basis that it wasn't scientific it wasn't true to the mission of MUFON, and we were now in the realm of, you know, blatant speculation for the sake of selling symposium tickets. Exactly. Yeah, I've, I 100% agree with them. For people that don't know, um, what was this year's MUFON symposium theme? And who? And maybe a couple of the speakers, actually. The Secret Space Army. Or, yeah, our program, I guess. The program. And, of course, the... Uh, the number one advocate is Corey Good, right? Who has become a, uh, you know, for good or ill, a very notorious person in the world of ufology. A lot of attention focused on him. He is claiming that he did a twenty-year career. He was taken away in time travel when he was a very young man, whisked away into the future. He spent twenty years in a variety of ultra-top-secret positions related to supporting the Galactic Federation, whatever. There's a whole mythos yeah. that surrounds this thing. And then when he was all done, they whisked him back in time to just moments after he left. And the beauty of this is no one who knows him would ever know that he had been anywhere or done any of this. So now we have a story... <laughs> That is wild and fantastic, and no one can ever prove it or disprove it. And it, people it, are lapping it up and loving it. Yes. I don't know. I think ufology of, a few years ago has, has gone from sort of being like professional wrestling to being exactly like professional wrestling. <laughs> yes. I really, I'm sad but true. I, I think that's an apt analogy. And it's even more apt to hear you say that because. When I worked for the Department of Licensing in Washington State, I worked in the odd part of DOL that most people don't know about. Mm 
mm-hmm. which is that we did professional licensing, which included uh, the licensing for wrestling. <laughs> and I saw some things that I had always suspected, but I had I finally saw direct evidence. I uh, we had to watch these matches because the state collected revenue from the ticket sales. Uh-huh. And we had to monitor for compliance with the rules governing these wrestling matches, as they were. Yes. And you would see these people expressing horrible hatred for each other. You would have thought that they were, you know, the deadliest of enemies. And then in the back room, I see the very same two guys afterwards. And one of them goes up to the other one and goes, are you okay? <laughs> And and he puts his hand on his shoulder and he said, I told you to fall left. And the guy goes, oh, I thought you said fall right. And I, <laughs> and he's going, God, I didn't mean to throw you that way. You know what I mean? It's like yes. it's all choreographed. Yeah, well, I think most people know that. Um, maybe I guess the difference with the ufology is they choose not to believe that or they don't you know if they did see those guys talking in the background saying you know uh, i hope i didn't hurt you they think it was some sort of a government plot to keep you from the truth of professional wrestling of course but see i because i have such a strong investigative background i try to be very clear in my mind when i am drawing a logical conclusion from a series of facts and when i am engaged in speculating and i love to speculate And I like a good science fiction movie. I love to be entertained. Mm -hmm. But I I know when I'm watching entertainment. You know, that's I'm not expecting it to be the truth. Yes. Exactly. And And there's no real truth around here, particularly except for that something weird is going on. I I think that's the only thing that you and I and a few other people agree on is something very strange is going on, but right past that, the second statement is, but we don't know what. Right. Um, and there's a and lot then, of smoke. And then you, We're just still yeah. looking for the fire, I think. And then to just grab, you know, to kind of cut to the heart of this, Yeah. the problem is what exactly is MUFON's role? And I, you know, yeah. to give – you can argue both sides of this question. Mm. MUFON did almost close several years ago. Right. I mean, it – closed for for not having any money to operate at all when james carrion left and i'm not even going to try and ascribe blame but you had a situation where you had bigelow aerospace james carrion and the mufon board and they were all pointing fingers at each other saying he did it he did it he did it and you had clifford clift i think was the next director that went in after James Carrion. And I don't think a whole lot happened while he was in charge. And I know that after him was Dave McDonald. And Dave McDonald has said on more than one occasion that MUFON was within a couple of weeks of closing its doors for lack of money. That's how bad it got. Ah. I didn't. I didn't even realize it. So was that when uh, Harzan came in and decided to run it like a business, which is where we're well, that's we're at exactly now. what happened. After Dave McDonald was there for about a year, uh, Harzan became the international director. And right. of course, in my own history, I started with Mufon in 1987, and in 
2011, I had a confrontation with one of the people who was in the MUFON inner circle named Marie Malzahn, who came out of nowhere. She did not work her way up through the ranks of MUFON. She was not a state director. I don't even know if she was a field investigator, but she became the director of investigations. <laughs> Because she had paid a big amount of money to MUFON, they made a director out of her and they put her to work. So she ended up being the director of investigations. She ended up ordering me around when I was trying to help one of my investigators. There was a, a snafu with the way the system was being used. Mm -hmm. And she told me that I, I would obey her orders or else. And I said, I'm a volunteer. You can't talk to me that way. And mm -hmm. I quit. And I was gone for over a year until Dave McDonald invited me back. And pretty soon, a few months after that, I was back to my state director position after I guess I got off uh, probation for, you know, being a bad boy and standing <laughs> up to authority. Yeah. Well, dumb authority and, anyway. Well, there you go. And I was state director ever since. And I will tell you that MUFON state organizations very greatly yes i've heard and basically they are haves and have nots some of the state organizations are extremely well developed they are fully staffed they're big enough that they have their own little mini symposiums they have guest speakers regular training there are some terrific things going on and there are other states where they're just hanging on i inherited a state directorship where I was just hanging on, which was here in Washington State. Right. Our, st our state is divided by the Cascade Mountains. I was working full-time. I don't live in Seattle. The Seattle group had kind of drifted apart after Peter Davenport moved away and Larry and Marilyn Childs, who devoted many years selflessly to MUFON, they finally they were getting too old to do it anymore. And so the logistics of trying to keep the Seattle group together were beyond me. I didn't have the money or the time to keep that together. I did what I could. Heck, just keeping up with the incoming UFO cases is enough to drive anybody crazy unless you're fully staffed because they don't screen cases. I don't care what they tell people. MUFON does not screen cases. It doesn't matter how crazy or weird the thing is, it gets reported. They expect an investigative report. Well, give me an example. You gave me, I think you gave me at least one great example of that. I can give you the example that, that was probably, in terms of cases, was the one that broke the camel's back. <laughs> and I will, I haven't personally investigated over 750 cases for MUFON. I did that by going into CMS and counting all the cases where I was the investigating officer. Right. That's case management system, right? For case management system. Their, I their call computer the, records. Right. The CMS hamster wheel. That's what I, <laughs> I call it. But because I, I'm, I'm with Dr. J. Allen Hynek, I think lights in the sky are pretty pointless. <laughs> They're yeah. interesting, but they don't prove anything one way or the other. Yeah. Just that there's and some strange lights in the sky. And you always go out the same door you went in. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Okay, thank you. I mean, I, I just can't help but feel that way. So I get this case, and it's a, a gentleman up who lives in a motel 
up by the airport in Seattle. This is not the high, high rent district. He sends a series of photos, including a couple of selfies <laughs> and his evidence to support his claim. He claims that while taking a shower, a gray alien appeared in the shower with him and beat him up. <laughs> yeah. And he claims that he was injured, and there's no delicate way to say this. He claims that his injuries involved blood in his stool. Yes. <laughs> you told me so about he's, this. He sent me pictures of his latest bowel movement in the toilet. <laughs> and I'm supposed to investigate this. <laughs> Now, I was very glad that I assigned this to myself and I saw it first because, quite frankly, I would not have wanted to give this to any of the more squeamish investigators that I have. <laughs> well, I, needless to say, I was not terribly impressed with the credibility of this event, and I communicated that to this witness. And when our communication went rapidly downhill... <laughs> and as soon as I said that I thought that this was a hoax, uh, he became belligerent, violent, and threatening. And I ceased communication with him. Well, luckily he didn't know where you lived, so. Exactly. What I've heard from a few people I've talked to, and I'm sure you'll back this up, a very wide net is thrown, a very not, as you say, a not very discriminatory net is thrown. It, it, it has very small or no openings in the, in the sieve. And then if something becomes noteworthy, important, follow-up kind of thing, the local investigator is the, who originally located the case and interviewed everybody is um, summarily thrown off the case and it's given to, it's sent higher up and the local person is left there forgotten and uh, written out of the record, as, as you said. Is that a very fairly uh, um, accurate I would assessment? Say, I would say yes and no. Uh, I have heard of that in other states. I don't have any direct evidence of that in Washington state, quite frankly, because I would not have stood for it. Uh, sec the, however, and this is a big however, during the period of time when there was a contractual relationship between MUFON and Bigelow Aerospace, I think it went on for the better part of two years, mm -hmm. as I recall, uh, Bigelow Aerospace offered to provide funds for, I, you know, use the cliche, boots on the ground investigation. They would pay airfare, meals, whatever it took to get an investigator to the scene of a reported UFO event and investigating it. And in return, Bigelow and MUFON would share their findings. I can tell you for certain that there were two cases in Washington State one of them I investigated, one of them investigated by my wife, where we made our first contact with the witnesses, got the basic information. When we went back and attempted the second interview, we were told by the witness, the Bigelow investigators were here, and they said that we shouldn't talk to MUFON. So, you know, that, and I had heard that from other places, but those two particular instances, I'm sure of. And so I'm guessing that this was fairly widespread, so I don't think you're off the mark. And most of the time, we would have no way of knowing because, you know, if a case was really promising, 
we might never get it to begin with. And I, you know, I can't tell you what we never saw. <laughs> right, exactly. Even being state director. Right. Because you're dependent on the cases being reported through the initial. There is a group of people who are supposed to screen the cases. And, you know, I don't know what all that means. I don't even know who these people are. You know, can, can we get back to uh, your reasons for leaving? Yes. We've already gone through some of them. And when I first uh, met you there in Roswell, I said, you, you know, what's the first thing on everybody's right, mind right now is John Ventry. I said, was that the straw that broke the camel's back? You said, no, not really. It's just it, it was just another thing. That was bad enough. Yeah. I, um, I became alarmed starting in about 2015 after I saw some things at the International UFO Congress that led me to believe that the primary driving force uh, in the current MUFON organization is funding and mostly for the salary of the director. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to say it. The actual MUFON tax return is available online to anyone who wants to see it. Uh, the 2015 one is. I don't know about 2016. I don't know if that one... I don't even know who organized that website, but the actual images are online for anyone who wants to look it up. Yeah, I'll put them in the. Uh, I'll link them on the uh, the write up for the the uh, interview when I put it up. But but in fairness, getting back to a point I was starting to make earlier, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, you could argue and say, well, if Mufon stayed true to its principles, perhaps it would no longer exist because <laughs> there would be no money to make it operate. But then I look at the alternative that we're facing now and i don't see that mufon is much different than most corporations are in the country which is that you probably had a pioneer uh inventor or businessman back in you know a hundred years ago who started a particular company because they had a vision of providing a particular good and service mm -hmm. and they wanted to make a profit and that's kind of the essence of the American way, but they were driven by a motive to provide a good or a service to the, to the people. Well, what happens now is this is a couple generations past that. And the people who are running the company are pure business and they don't, I don't believe they embrace the vision of why the company was organized to begin with the good or service doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the salary and compensation for the CEO, the board of directors, and the stockholders. Anything else is just a nuisance that they deal with. It's an operating expense. So I see the same thing happening in the world of UFOs. I don't honestly believe that there is a lot of real, heartfelt, sincere dedication to the investigation of the UFO mystery. The UFO mystery is being used as an economic vehicle to generate a revenue stream. And you're talking about MUFON here, or, well, I can't think of any other big organization at the time, at this point right now, but you're ba basically talking about MUFON here, not about individual investigators or, or the state directors. or. No, or, I'm not, know. because they, the only reason that MUFON continues at all is because it has these extremely dedicated people, mm -hmm. the state directors in particular, who are putting in hundreds of hours. Yeah, for free. 
for free. They're doing all the work and they get nothing. They don't. I've had several people say, are you out of your mind? When I tell them (laughs) about MUFON, they say they have never heard of a volunteer organization that does not honor its own key volunteers by giving them some kind of a discount or a plaque or a, anything, uh, you know, anything to say thank you. But MUFON doesn't. They have some awards at the symposium, but this doesn't cover what what goes on. And to be honest, I got tired of being unacknowledged. Yeah, I've you know, I, I my accomplishments are, I would say, average for a dedicated ufology uh, a ufologist. I've I've written two books. I've given hundreds of lectures. Uh, radio interviews, whatever, to get out there to the public and talk about UFOs and be an advocate for studying this mystery. I I still do believe in it very strongly. And yet, I don't feel like anybody ever even really said, you know, when I told uh, Jan Harzan that I was resigning, he said, well, thank you for your service. (laughs) You know, I didn't even get the cream the cream chicken dinner and the gold watch (laughs) after 20, how many years? Well, almost 30. Yeah. I have up until recently, I have almost always been out there saying, I'm proud to be in MUFON. This is what MUFON is about. This is what I do for MUFON. You should think about joining MUFON. I've done that over and over and over again for years. And I just don't believe it anymore. I think I was serving something where I was never appreciated. And I, I, I know there's a point where you just get tired. And I know that Rich Hoffman reached that point. He felt like it was he was alone fighting against the forces that were seeking to make life even more difficult for the field investigators and the state directors. He got tired of battling the people in charge. Robert Powell said he just couldn't do it anymore. After they, they completely overrode him on why he did not think that the secret space program was a good idea for MUFON to basically endorse by selecting it as this year's theme, you know, he felt like they didn't even listen to him. And I know the feeling. Mm -hmm. I was also on the special assignments team for the last couple, three years. What did that, what what, what was, uh, what did the special assignments team do? Basically they clear out Jan Harzan's inbox. (laughs) What's in his inbox? Well, many people make reports and, you know, sometimes for legitimate reasons and sometimes because they are legends in their own mind, they they can only talk to the director. You know, I can't talk to a field investigator. I can't talk to a state director because what I have to say is so important and the men in black are going to come get me at any moment. And this is the most important UFO information ever. And we would get assigned to determine whether or not these reports were valid. And I bet 99% of the time they were just not. That's correct. And that does not make you popular. And in particular, I guess the one that really rubbed me the wrong way 
was uh, there was a an alleged UFO crash retrieval case from 1945, and I believe Paola Harris was the primary investigator. Uh, the only surviving witness was a very nice elderly gentleman who had a piece of metal that has pretty much been definitively identified as a replacement pump part for a windmill. I saw that. I was looking around for it online. I was trying to find that shape. Is that that thing yes. that looks like it's kind of triangular? and has Yes. This, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And he claims that he stole it off of a crashed UFO in 1945 when he was a little boy. And this, they've even taken metal samples from this thing. And it is earthly aluminum alloy. Yes. And there is, there is a very fine UFO researcher I've had the pleasure of meeting several times in Roswell. His name is Frank Kimbler. And he is an actual bona fide scientist. And he has gone out to all of these alleged crash sites. And he does systematic grid searching with metal detectors and, you know, digs up the ground and uh, screens it out. And he, he has found various interesting fragments of metal from uh, old-time, you know, military sea rations or old buttons or, or, you know, all kinds of interesting things. Well, he was out there at this crash site. And... Lo and behold, this was a big photo opportunity because Jan Harzan was there. They had one of Paola's assistants was wearing a full-body isolation suit. Oh, yes, this. A, according to her, the people who had, uh, the men in black, had planted the area with noxious weeds that had been genetically modified to keep away the UFO investigators. Uh, but not uh, your friend there or Harzan. I guess they they were fine. Right. <laughs> but they, they did go out in the field with this person that had the hazmat on, right? Yes, they did. Crazy. The problem with this entire scenario is the weeds were positively identified. One of them was Jimson weed, which, of course, grows everywhere down there. Yes. I guess it's dangerous if you eat it. That's about it. Right. It was, it's not genetically altered <laughs> to do anything other than be what it is. So, obviously, many of the claims were made about that case. The, I wrote up a systematic report. I had all of the findings from Frank Kimbler. He was, you know, he said, use the data as you see fit. It was obvious to me that. What happened was she locked in on a particular explanation. She believed the witness that this really was a UFO crash. The metal part was really an artifact from a UFO. And she was willing to bend the truth in any direction necessary in order to support the conclusion that she had already arrived at. That's not investigating. Yeah, well, that's common in UFO study, though. Exactly. In fact, I think it's just about 99% of UFO study. Unfortunately, that's true. And I turned in my report and I ended up getting a phone call from Jan Harzan and he didn't want to discuss my report. He wanted to know if I had some kind of personal grudge against Paola Harris. <laughs> I've never met the woman. Yeah. Everyone tells me she's a nice lady. 
She probably is. But this is not a good investigation. And I, you know, then it goes on from there. She, they, they do electron microscopy on the, uh, the pump part. Yeah. And when you get down at a low enough level, you see patterns in the metal that are really interesting looking. Well, it, Frank Kimbler explained it to me. He said, all metal, when it cools, when you look at it under that level of magnification. Yeah, has that crystalline structure. Exactly. And it creates interesting patterns on the surface as it cools down and crystallizes. Mm-hmm. But it, there's not, it's, it's not alien circuits. <laughs> That's what they said they were, huh? Exactly. And, and it's that kind of logic. And, and the problem is, is that that's being accepted as gospel. And I can't help but very cynically conclude that the reason that that sort of conclusion is now accepted as truth is because it sells tickets. Well, it sells tickets and it makes people who are investigating this look uh, smart, important, and, and relevant, I guess, which is all goes back to ego, which is probably something that should be left out of ufo investigation completely you can't get it, it out of every, everything yeah it should be left but, out anyway yeah i come out of everything actually but i come out i come at this as a as a former detective sergeant mm-hmm. and when you assume an investigation you are working for the prosecution but more importantly you are working for the people you know, when they file a felony charge against somebody, it would say, you know, the people of the state of Washington yeah. versus uh, John Doe. Yeah. Okay. And you as a police officer are sworn to seek the truth. And, and a good prosecutor, a good prosecutor expects the investigating officers to report everything. And that means evidence that incriminates the suspect but also evidence that exonerates the suspect and it you don't there are no biases evidence is evidence if it's relevant it goes into the case period end of story and the worst mistake in an investigation is to start off with a predetermined conclusion and investigate from that that is you know that's the surest way in the world to either set yourself up to lose a good case in court or even worse still, to convict an innocent person, right. which is is the one thing that every good police officer or detective, you are scared to death of doing that. When I, when I was a child abuse detective, that's that's where it really gets difficult mm-hmm. because the stakes are very very high. You don't want to make a mistake. If you level that accusation against somebody and it's not justified, you are destroying that person's life. Yeah, just and because the yeah, the, the even the question is going to even if they're exonerated is going to follow them throughout their lives. So you have got to be extremely careful what you do. And 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 you know, if you're a good detective, you care about that, you worry about it. And and I believe that you should do your UFO investigation the same way. And I always explain it one particular way. It's what I was taught a long time ago. I have not found anything that leads me to believe this is incorrect, which is that whenever you are in the investigation mode, you get to be a little schizophrenic. Huh. You are talking to a person who isn't real. 
and you're having a conversation with that person and the person is the reasonable man or reasonable woman, take your pick. This is the person who you are talking about and talking to when you say, what would a reasonable person conclude if they were confronted with the evidence that is before me now? Numbers, not what I want to, this to be, but what does it objectively look like? What does it objectively mean? That's being an investigator. If you apply this to UFOs, though, what, the objective meaning is something that's unknown, though. So uh, Exactly. So what, how do you – I mean, I can see how you might apply it in a UFO investigation, and what I would guess would be – um, the Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, school, meaning I've eliminated everything that's – I've tried to systematically eliminate everything that is – that would make this a mundane explanation, which you're going to get most of the time, and in fact possibly believe that, it, that most things will have a mundane explanation to the point at which where you, you get to the point where um, you have no other conclusion that's, than that, that something is unknown, and that's all you can do because I tell people, you know, I can't bring the UFO in here. You know, you saw a light in the sky that did a right angle turn. I can't conclusively tell you what that was, you know, or you report a weird light that goes straight across the sky in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. I don't know what was there. I can't tell you for sure. I can tell you that more than likely if it travels in a ballistic curve or it goes in a straight line, it probably has a man-made or a natural explanation, you know, but nobody can tell you exactly what you saw right. because we, we can't bring the thing in and I can't, you know, if I could put it on a trailer and we could all, you know, take pictures of it and touch it, <laughs> you and I would wouldn't be, be talking now. <laughs> That's right. We wouldn't have to. We'd probably be under arrest and in, in the custody of the military. But, um, <laughs> Well, but I, that's the problem with UFO investigation. And, you know, I we need to be scrupulous. And, and I guess where my sad disappointment is with MUFON is that I understand what has happened. And it's like watching a slow motion train wreck. <laughs> you can see the commercialism take over the organization. And you can't win against it. I mean, you can argue for investigative integrity and all of that. But in the end, the, the mode of revenue at all costs is going to win. That's how you get Hangar 1. Yeah. That's how you get all this other stuff. How you get Corey good and why we don't care about the fact that a particular investigative report says that that UFO crash was nonsense. That doesn't matter because it's what sells. How did they, how did MUFON survive for so long without being commercial like this? Is it because uh, the money, like you said, started going towards the top and not towards the, uh, not towards the investigation and keeping the organization going, or was it some other uh, reason? Uh, because I don't think that the greed was there, um, I hope it wasn't there when um, James Carrion was there, but it looks like it's ramped up since then. When it was running out of money then, where was the money going then? Good question. I don't know. Uh, the, I'll see, the problem with all of it is, you know, people say, well, you know, we could, we could change MUFON. No, you can't. It's not 
organized that way. No, you can't. The, it's the it's got its the own. Board, yeah. The board is self-perpetuating. They are not beholden to the state directors. They are not beholden to the public. They don't have to answer to anybody. Right. You know, obviously, if people quit subscribing to the magazine and they quit going to the symposium, that would have an effect on them. But as far as saying, you know, we're going to affect a change and move on, why would they listen to anybody? Right, but how did they get to the point where they had almost uh, almost ceased to exist? Is it was it low low uh, uh, membership or what was it? Yes. Okay, or weren't getting enough people? I, I don't have the exact numbers, but my understanding is that's correct. During the darkest times, the membership was way down. There just wasn't there wasn't enough going on to sustain it. I mean, let's face it: if you put on a successful symposium. I'm not talking about whether or not, you know, people are being truthful. But if you, you get a lot of people in the door who have paid for tickets, you can turn a big profit. And that might help you get through the year. Yes. You know, that's a fact. And I believe that this last symposium was probably a resounding success. Financially. From, from that perspective. Yep. But there is a cost. Their cost is your credibility. Back in 2010, I had a unique opportunity. My wife inherited a trip to Paris. I had never been anywhere like that in my life. Oh, you told me about this. This is a fascinating story about what goes it on is. in other countries. Exactly. And I, because we were going over there, I got on the Internet and I sent an email to Le Repas Ufologique. And this is a monthly group of UFO enthusiasts who meet at a mall in the western part of Paris in a big restaurant, and they have a monthly speaker and a dinner meeting. Mm -hmm. And I said, is there any chance that I could present? And they said, we'd love to have you. So I told the June Crane story. And they apologized because they could only get 150 people there because <laughs> they had a strike going on. They're always striking about something. And the, the people couldn't get in from the suburbs. Only 150. Only 150. And they were wonderful people. And, of course, as I learned in Paris, they wait to see whether or not you respect their language. Oh, yes. And I would attempt my pauvre français, and the moment I would do that, they would hit me back in perfect English. Yes. No, that, that, this is a very specific thing that happens in France and Quebec, too. Start in French. They realize you don't speak French. It's like saying, hi, hello, how, how are you? If you don't say that, it's rude. And that's fine. That's a, and I, I, I respect understand that. understand that. Yeah. When they, in Rome. Were, when in Paris. They were lovely people. I think Paris, Paris is the most magnificent place I've ever seen. And I know absolutely for certain, if I would have gone there as a young man, I would have never come back. <laughs> I've I've been there three times, and one person's been rude to me, a waiter. Everybody well, you else get that has anywhere. been yeah, everybody exactly. Every place else in Paris and in France and any French speaking area, as long as I greet them in French, people are so friendly. It's almost it's it's embarrassing. Exactly, they're lovely people. Well, I told them that. I was, uh, you know, I told them all about myself, and and I told the June Crane story. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish I, I would have ask had, you about. I wished I would have had two suitcases more of books. I didn't bring enough because I sold out in about two minutes. Your English books? Yes, in my books in English, yeah. and 
they they would have bought if I would have had two more suitcases, I would have sold every last book I had. <laughs> and the interesting thing was they they were very cordial to me, very respectful. They did not like MUFON. They said we don't trust MUFON. We have not trusted MUFON for a long time. And what was their reasoning? I didn't I don't really know. There mm. was not this was in the midst of question and answer and all of that afterwards. So I, I didn't really get to explore that history, but it was obvious to me that this was a commonly held belief. Yeah. I don't know if it has to do with uh, suspicion about the way it's run or maybe connections to Bigelow at the time or whatever. What I would actually like to know and um, nothing to do with their distrust of MUFON. What kind of questions did this French audience ask you that you don't get here? Wow. Now, that would require a level of memory searching that I'm not sure I can do off the cuff. <laughs> have a whack at it. You've got to remember that I have told this story so many times in so many places. I've, they, only, heard, I've only heard a bit of it. And that, and what well, I told can tell you the story, but as far as isolating what they asked as opposed to what anyone else asked. Okay. Do you remember the most interesting thing they asked that made you go, huh? I can't believe somebody could ask that. That's very intelligent and incisive, and I wish it was asked more. Hmm. <laughs> this really is not easy. Okay. We can, I, I'm we, not avoiding the question. No, I, I need, understand. I need some time to ponder that. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll come back to it. There have been a few things that have happened to me since 2010. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's just say it has not been an uneventful time. Yes, exactly. And, and then you're just moving now, so you got a lot of other stuff on your mind. So I appreciate that you sure. put the time uh, together to be able to talk to me here. Um, you did mention June Crane. You did give a talk on June Crane, which I couldn't come to because I was speaking. Or, you know, when somebody invites you to a conference mm -hmm. as a speaker, you don't just run off after you're finished speaking. You, it's, it's a courtesy to stay there, sell books, talk to people, talk to the organizers, all these things. That, that's Exactly, uh, especially in Roswell. Especially in Roswell. Anywhere, actually. I've never, you know, I've never run. I, I could be somewhere I've never been before, and I can't. It's like a business trip. You can't leave the place. Right. Um, because it, it's just it's just rude. Anyway, so the upshot is I did not get to see your talk on June Crane. Maybe you can tell people who June Crane was and uh, what your talk was about and why do you think that she was important to the history of um, UFO study? Well, this all starts because of my library lectures. In the state of Washington on the southwest coast of the state is Grace Harbor. Grace Harbor is like a big triangle. Where Aberdeen is is where two rivers the Chehalis and the Wishkaw come together, flow into Grays Harbor. Mm -hmm. If you go 25 miles to the south, you end up in Westport, Washington, which was the location of the UFO crash. If you go 25 miles to the north, you come to the city of Ocean Shores, Washington. In 1993, I gave a presentation at the local library, and when I was all done, a very stern elderly woman approached me. <laughs> whose name was June Kaba. That was her married name. Mm -hmm. Her maiden name was June Crane. Oh, okay. She was very well known in the community. She led the charity drive to build a new library. Uh, she was one of those elderly women that everybody was intimidated by. Huh. And they, everybody listened to June. In fact, when my wife, who was a children's librarian in the area, told me that of all the people she could imagine, 
June was the last person she would have thought would know anything about UFOs or take them seriously. Mm-hmm. But lo and behold, what we did not know was that I met her in her very late 60s, early 70s. And when she was a young woman, she grew up in Dayton, Ohio. And as she put it, she said, if you wanted a decent job in Dayton, you went to work for the government. Right. She she worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base before there was even an Air Force, starting in 1942. Her original paperwork shows her working for the War Department, the Air Materiel Command. Uh, she worked there three times between 1942 and 1952. Her career was broken by illness on one occasion and pregnancy on another. She was what we would now call an office manager, only you have to bear in mind that she had a Q-level security clearance because she was working amongst scientists and engineers involved in extremely classified programs. And she knew these people as friends and co-workers. Mm -hmm. And long ago, when I was a detective sergeant, I learned early on that whenever you visit a business the one person that you want to make friends with is the secretary. Yes. Because they are the gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. And in most organizations, they're the only person who really knows what the heck's going on. Right. Even more so than the boss. Mm -hmm. And if the secretary likes you, you will get everything. And if she doesn't like you, you will get nothing. (laughs) So it's really pretty simple. Well, June was that way, and you have to bear in mind that this is pre-internet. Everything was on a typewriter. Uh, In her office, every single piece of paper and all the typewriter ribbons had to be secured in a safe at night when they went home. Uh, One example, she worked on something called Project Caucasian, and for the first three years after I was told, after June died, which was in 1998, I tried to find somebody who could tell me what Project Caucasian was, and nobody had the slightest idea. About three years after that, the Project Caucasian was declassified, and it turned out to be the code name for the construction of the parachute harness to hold a hydrogen bomb when it was dropped out of, the, of a B-36 bomber. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, that's what you call sensitive classified work. Yeah. Well, back to my story, June would not talk to me in 1993. It wasn't until four years later, 1997, along about mid-year and before the 50th anniversary of the Roswell crash, on CNN, if you go back in the history back then, a new publication came out from the Air Force called Roswell Case Closed. Yes, It got maximum coverage on CNN. June saw that, and she had not talked to me for four years. I gave her my business card. I said, if you ever change your mind, please call me, because I could just tell that this lady was serious. This was not your average person who engages in what I call disclosure mystique, where they want to be really mysterious but they really don't have anything important to tell you. Yes. 
And uh, that, so, yeah, and they, they they speak much without saying anything. And you're saying that June was basically the opposite. She had nothing to say. She just wouldn't say anything for four right, years. She just wouldn't say anything for four years. Yeah. She sees this thing on CNN. I believe that her cancer had come by, back by then. She called me on the phone, and she's basically out of the blue. She starts in. She says, it's a damn lie. And I said, well, good to hear from you. And <laughs> we started our conversation. And she started telling me all these things. I said, why are you willing to talk to me now? And you weren't willing to talk to me then. And she said, I'm 72 years old. I've survived cancer. My cancer's in remission. And I've outlived two husbands. What are they going to do? Shoot me or put me in prison. I can do either one. <laughs> well, I was going through a period in my life where I was kind of, actually, it was before I got together with my wife. And we had broken up at that point, and I was kind of at loose ends. And I started visiting June in her home late at night. She was a night owl. I was a night owl. And I got to hear the story of her life. And so even if there had been no UFOs, I would have been fascinated. She had all kinds of, of anecdotes. It was like you meet somebody like this, it's like a time machine. Yeah. I, and she told me like the night that Pearl Harbor happened. At that point, there was no Wright-Patterson Air Force Base because there was no Air Force. Right. This December 7th, 1941. And there, were, there wasn't even a fence around Wright Field. But <laughs> when Pearl Harbor happened, they sent truckloads of sentries out, soldiers with rifles, and they surrounded the entire field with sentries until they could build a fence and put up guard towers because that's how open it was before then. Mm -hmm. Nobody was prepared for Pearl Harbor. Yeah, well, suddenly it was like uh, it was like having a you know a terrorist alert. At least in those days, that everybody was suddenly on edge, and they didn't know if some if uh, if uh, the Japanese were going to come and drop bombs on airfields, or they had exactly. spies, spies there, or what. So that makes total sense. They were. Uh, this was the heart of the Air Force. I think that's still basically true. All of the early research, the first wind tunnels, mm -hmm. all of that was at Wright. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Field. Um, yes. And, and later and, known as the Foreign Technology Division, which is, I think, when uh, June exactly the period that June is talking about. Exactly, and you know, so she didn't have every single detail. That's another thing I liked about June. But I could absolutely prove where she worked. She gave me all of her papers. I verified her employment independently through the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, who sent me an even bigger collection of all of her personnel documents mm -hmm. from when she worked there. So, I mean, she was exactly who she said she was. So it's, it's like so many other witnesses. I can prove many parts of her story. Can I prove all of the parts of her story? No, I can't. But I did. I loved interviewing June because for one thing, I guess I broke the cardinal rule of being an investigator because she and I were friends, but I took, I, you know, anything that I could verify that she told me, I verified. And the things that I couldn't verify, I identified them. When I was interviewing her, if she didn't know, she didn't know. If she didn't remember, she didn't remember. You know, I like witnesses like that. I hate witnesses who claim to know everything about everything. They worry me.
Yes, of course. And I've met them in the UFO field. You start talking to them, and they know everything. I mean, the the commander of the alien armada has given them the secret strategy for, you know, the conquest of the galaxy and all that. <laughs> I get really tired of that. What did June say that uh, about getting back to what when she watched the uh, CNN report on the Air Force uh, release? She said, why, "Why did she say it was a lie?" She said, "That's the same lie that we used when I worked there." She told me that part of her secretarial duties were responding to correspondence where people would claim they had seen a UFO or whatever, and she had they in those days. If you had sent them a, a report of a UFO, they would actually type you out a little form letter that said, based upon the engineering considerations, et cetera, et cetera, what you have reported is not aerodynamically possible. She had this whole little boilerplate language. Uh -huh. And she said, we, we, we used the balloon lie back then, and we're still using it. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and but the thing is that people will make the mistake, which I believe a mistake, that if she's saying that that's a lie, it means that uh, whatever they're covering up is something extraterrestrial. I don't. Did she believe that? She believed that by the time she left in 1952, the Air Force had recovered not one but three crashed UFOs. She did not tell me where they were from. She did not tell me they were necessarily alien. The only thing she did tell me, among other, our other anecdotes, but one of the most interesting ones was that she had a, um, a close a friend, a pilot. Actually, no, he was a master sergeant. He was a crewman on a cargo plane, and it was somebody she had seen repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And they, they would all have coffee together because everybody had the same security clearance, and they're all in a secure area. Yeah, And he, he comes in one day and he's looking really upset and kind of, you know, a little shaky. And he starts telling them that he flew in the night before with bodies and wreckage from New Mexico. And it's one of those odd conversations where everybody thinks that what he's talking about is like a crashed conventional aircraft. And they're all worried that maybe they know the person who died in the wreck. And at some point, he realizes that they're not understanding what he's trying to tell them. And he says, you don't understand. They're not human. And then he went on to describe the big heads. You know, they had odd colored skin, uh, all of that. And he mm -hmm. said they were the same size as children. Right. So, you know, she never said they were aliens. She never said they weren't aliens. She said that this man said they're not human. You can make of that whatever you will. So those are the kind of stories she gave us. I hate to ask this, but what do you think she was? Uh, she and that guy were describing? A non-human alien being. From where? I don't know. Mm. What do you think of Nick Redfern's idea about uh, the secret testing? I think it's baloney. <laughs> Why? Well, I have to go back and, and look at it from another viewpoint. Now, did, in Nick Redfern's theory, isn't it the Japanese or somebody doing the experimenting on the... No, his theory is that there were e either... 
Japanese soldiers or more likely people that have that nobody really cared about, people that were put in asylums, people with uh, genetic disorders that they were using to test high altitude exposure and that uh, these a couple of these things crashed and it was so secret that uh, one, it was scandalous to be using these humans and two, it was so secret what they were trying to test for, you know, eventual space flight or high altitude flight near space that that's what engendered the um, the secrecy. I'm, I'm sure Nick would say that I've, that's fairly a pretty fair assessment of what he's uh, of what he's saying in his two books. I guess my resistance to that is based upon where was this launched from? Uh, you know that he said that either from most likely from Holloman because that's where all the high-altitude research was going on, and it's it's generally very near that area of southern New Mexico. No, I, I, I get all that. I just yeah. I, I have the same problem with that. I guess the one that I reacted to most strongly was Annie Jacobson's theory that was expressed in her book, Area 51. I can't remember what she said. What did she say? It was something that they, they had flown from Russia or some damn thing? It started off with uh, Mengele, Dr. Mengele. Yeah. Had been, uh, he didn't die in South America he was given safe harbor by uh, Joseph Stalin, and the Russians had put together a fake alien spacecraft with surgically altered children, and they deliberately crashed it near Roswell to scare the American military. That sounds and, way less plausible than Nick's theory, actually. Well, yes, I know. <laughs> and. But it sure I think he addresses sell, that in his book, actually. It helped her sell her book. And her book is basically several hundred pages of anecdotal stories, which are extremely interesting, from people who worked, most of them were security guards, etc., who worked at Area 51. And right. so if she had left that alone and just put that out there, it would be a perfectly good book. But in my opinion, she should have left out like the first 20 pages and the last 20 pages because this is where she discusses the real truth about Roswell. Right. And it goes, it goes into this Dr. Mengele and the right. fake saucer and all that good stuff. And, of course, this is about like Corey Good's stuff. It's dependent upon one unidentified informant and no direct evidence of any sort. Yes. Nix is dependent on, I think, four or five different people and some documented uh, evidence about what was going on around there, but nothing direct. Well, then that would be a, it would be a more plausible story to have four or five sources, obviously. Independent sources, actually. Yes, that helps a lot in an investigation. Anyway, uh, please, please go ahead. You, you think it's baloney because of some of the things that June Crane told you? Yes, in general. Okay. Now, I wish I could fill in all the blanks. I have to admit, you know, there is a part of me that finds the extraterrestrial hypothesis extremely appealing. I can't deny that. Me too. And I, can't, I can't tell you that I'm, I'm totally one way or the other on it. It's it's one of my favorite speculations. It's a I fun speculation. That's, that's, I mean, it's it's and it flatters all of our prejudices about where we think something non-human would come from, what their motivations were, what they looked like, all those other things. Yes, precisely. And therein lies the problem. 
<laughs> Which is a huge one. Yeah, prejudice flattering. And you can't really get away from it because we're... You can't imagine what you can't imagine. That and the fact that it's very hard to not have some kind of a bias. Yes, that, that's, the, that's the hardest thing in the world, actually, just to try to keep that bias away. Because then, you know, it, it's not very exciting when you don't come up with anything. <laughs> exactly. And now we're back... Now we're back to the fundamental MUFON problem. Yes, exactly. It's it's not sexy to do an investigation when the answer to the investigation is, I don't find that the witness has much credibility. Which is, uh, uh, I don't know, what in your experience, how, how uh, often was that? Well, I could, I could tell you that out of 750 UFO cases, eight out of every ten fall into man-made, natural, or insufficient inf- information, to make a long story short. Mm-hmm. So that, that remaining, what, uh, 10, uh, 15% or whatever it is? Yeah. In, in your experience. What, and you actually, actually you also said the stuff that happens a little bit closer, and you're talking about you know, close encounters less than 500 feet now, right? Exactly. If S- people start talking about structured vehicles of some sort, and something that's much closer to them, you get way more detail when you interview them, you know, as opposed to, I saw a light in the sky. Mm-hmm. You know, we have warehouses. MUFON has warehouses full of light in the sky reports. Yes. And, and, and no, you know, in all reality, no one is ever going to go back and study that data. It's not going to happen. It's not because it's just, it's just too labor intensive. Although... And I think we've talked about this. Um, looking at the uh, if it's accurate enough, and you can keep it all in one uh, uh, in a way that it can be organized in in some in some fashion. There may be patterns that might be helpful, but the thing is, just so much data there that, no, like you said, nobody's going to take the time to enter. That's right. Which is unfortunate. It is, and once in a while, it is useful. In other words, like. When I did the Westport crash, I was a, we have an event where something starts coming down out of the sky that's seen 40 miles away from the impact point. And I had witnesses all along the way, and I could ask each witness, what direction did the object come from, and what direction did it leave your field of view? And when I put all of those on a map, they all connect up. See, now that's useful. Oh, you've got a straight line mystery. Yes, <laughs> like uh, Amy Michelle. Well, it helps. Michelle. Yeah, it, it helps you get a better understanding. So, uh, you know, after gathering all this and your the reports you've looked at and the people you've talked to, and I, you know, we don't have to hold this to the end. We can talk about whatever. What do you think would contribute to any kind of better understanding? And I'm I've stopped saying solution because you've already tracked yourself when you're saying. I that. suspect that it's individual. Hmm. At this point, I don't think... How do you you mean? Go ahead. What I mean is we're all on our own personal quest for the truth. Right. And I I suspect that the phenomena is presenting itself to us as individuals so that in the long run, collectively, we as a species or civilization will attain a higher level of understanding of the universe. You know, I'm not trying to sound... Well, maybe I am. There's a certain <laughs> there's a certain part of me 
that is somewhat of a, I guess, new age thinker. I hate to delve into that cliche, but it's true. Um, no, you know, I admire the the um, the qualifiers because it, a lot of people that get into this at some point um, they start to confront this, and some of them either go whole hog and you that's all you hear from them again, or they reject it completely, which I think is a mistake too. Um, but you know, I, accepting I that you have those, line. yeah, if you accepting that those ideas are are entering and 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 relevant, I think it, it to me is uh, it's respectable to me. I I I, I, I understand, and I, and I I thank you for that. But it also tells me that I'm doing the job that I want to be doing, which is that I I believe that the work that I have done and that I am doing is to try and get more people to be more understanding of the phenomena, and hopefully. I would like to see more people become critical thinkers. Unfortunately, that's not a popular idea right now. Not at all. You know, not just in UFOs, but yeah, society in, as a whole. Yeah, in this country, I guess. But uh, it's still very important that we do that and that those of us who are, you know, who are critical and try to take a step back and look at things a little deeper – we need to talk to other people and try and convince mostly, you know, I'm 65. I, you know, obviously I'm starting to come to a different part of my life and I, I want to pass on my perspective to some other people. That's why I've been so grateful for opportunities to be on a program like this or when I got on the uh, UFO hub on YouTube to be able to reach people with exactly what you were talking about. I try to walk the line and always be aware of when I'm speculating and when I am proceeding based upon a reasonable conclusion, knowing that this is really hard stuff because we don't have one of these UFOs in front of us and because we can't produce a UFO at will. You know, it's not a easily repeatable phenomena, which is what rigorous science would want us to use if we were going to use the classic scientific method. The classic scientific method may not work at all on this mystery. It may not, it just may not operate that way. Your words coming out are the same words I've been saying for a while. It's a valuable tool, I think, but it's not the only one. And if you look at it as the only tool or the best one, I'm not sure if you're on the right track with trying to figure out what this is. And the fact that it's so individual, the way people react to it, that's another strike against it and looking at it scientifically as a whole, would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely, because the problem is it's like, you know, you, you get the classic UFO report and, you know, someone is in the middle of a city like Seattle with a you know a million people in it and yeah. they see a UFO that's somewhere in the sky 10 miles or more away and they're telling me well I know it was watching me and it made me feel this or it made me feel that mm -hmm. well I'm sorry but I don't quite get it why why did it pick you out and not any of the other you know bazillion people that might have been closer to it than you are why you and not everybody between you and it yeah 
So that either means and, they're making things up or there's something going on with them which is completely unreproducible for anybody else. Exactly. And I, I happen to think that a lot of people, because they're not trained observers, they don't know how to separate the difference between something that they are sensing objectively outside of themselves mm-hmm. and and their subjective reaction to it. Right. A good investigator knows how to make that distinction. Right. Um, but the thing is that the if you're looking at a, a witness to something, especially something closer, there's a lot of subjectivity going on there. Oh, yeah. And I, and I would argue that that subjectivity is very important. Although it's unfortunately, it's, it, it's not very quantifiable. That's, that's exactly right. It's a good news, bad news situation. <laughs> Since you've uh, basically said MUFON is not useful to me or probably anybody else at this point, except the, the people that are making money off it, what do you, you – you said, I want to continue with this uh, – with my interest. How are you continuing with it? Uh, you know, what, what are you doing going forward to, um, I guess, uh, form, form things in, more into the way that you think they should be, or at least you get the most um, enjoyment and knowledge and uh, understanding out of? Well, that's the perfect question. I am in the process of creating something that I call the UFO Research Group, which is an ad hoc uh, private group of individuals i don't even know how many they're going to be or what exactly i do know what kind of cases i'm seeking i'm looking for people like june crane i'm looking for cases like the westport crash i'm looking for for instance uh cases that i've gotten from pilots or on-duty law enforcement officers i'm very interested in cases where the witness is taking some kind of a risk to make their statement. Mm-hmm. Because I th- I find that these cases, for want of a better term, these are, these are reports that have meat on them. These are cases you can really study. They're frequently cases where maybe you can get radar. I'm also going to be working as much as possible with Peter Davenport. He does not have any investigators all he does is collect the data mm-hmm. and there he sits are on case- that phone all the time apparently i know and i don't know how he remains so dedicated <laughs> he is the most dedicated individual in this entire field and and even he will tell you that sometimes it's just overwhelming and exhausting mm-hmm. but anyway that's my goal and i you know i'm not going to uh I'm not going to sell memberships. I'm not going to do symposiums. I will go if somebody wants me to speak, but I'm not going to start my own. And there won't be any secret decoder rings or special (laughs) handshakes. Or inner circles or anything. Yes, no inner circles. So Uh, that's my goal at this point. This sounds great. I hope you're successful. I don't even know what success means except to, you know, run things in the way that seems to make sense. Well, I'll tell you what success means. Hmm. What? I have a goal. I was going to ask, what is the end? What is the end game on this? I want to meet an alien. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I want no, to meet I'm laughing because I, I, understand I, I know, but I want to meet a non-human intelligence and, and, and experience for myself what this is all about. I, although I have investigated cases for many, many years, 
I have, I always tell people, you know, because one of the first questions they ask is, well, what have you seen? What have you experienced? And the only way I can describe my feeling is to say, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me you too. You know, I keep waiting. I want my experience because that way, hopefully, then I will know. Yes. You should listen to a few of my shows. We've got people talking about that very thing. They, oh, they may be dealing with things that you might not uh, think are sane. <laughs> well, I know. I know. And, and in fact, there's... Uh, I recall one of the essays in Reframing the Debate is written by, you know, someone who is an experiencer. And that's one of the things I love about that book was that they included his essay, too. Yeah, uh, Mike Cleland, I believe. Exactly. And I and I admire uh, the editing on that because, you know, you need to have that in there. Yes. Because there are people who have extraordinary experiences who are extremely articulate and they need to be understood. Mm -hmm. They need to have people they can talk to who will listen to them with compassion and sincerity. You know, I uh, I've tried to come up with my own little mission statement. So my mission statement is UFO investigation with integrity, discretion and sensitivity. That's what I'm going to be about from here on out. Excellent. Anybody would want to achieve those goals. And it's very, very rare that anybody does that in UFO study or really any paranormal study, but, you know, particularly what we're talking about here. What I was saying earlier was that Stephen Greer, notwithstanding, I think there's a lot of ego problems and all that going on with him. I've got this idea. Tell me what you think is that if you can figure out a way for a a sizable chunk of people to have something happen to them on demand, whatever it might be, that might be the key. Not telling them that there's all this evidence from people that are very smart and uh, observant and have things a lot to lose by admitting it. What if, you know, you you get somebody to do something, to perform some kind of what? Uh, Meditation, ritual, uh, set of instructions by themselves, somewhere where nobody else is around, and have something happen. I think that would go a lot further to convincing people that there was something going on than reading 300 books. Well, that's true, but then you would have a phenomena that we could reproduce. Yes, but I'm afraid it would be reproducible, but not in the same way for everybody because of what we talked about earlier. It's a very well, yes. individual experience. And the, the guy actually I talked to, uh, Ritz, Jeff Ritzman, he said, you know, he said people have using his method, which is still in development. People go out and he said things happen to them, but it's not reliable. It's a maybe 40 to 60 percent of the time. It's never what they expect and it's never when they expect it. That kind of sounds like dreaming. Yes. Well, a lot of UFO stuff to me, when people describe it, sounds like dream logic, which is something your mind knows about. Yes. And there is the one of the things that makes the UFO phenomena so fascinating and so frustrating at the same time is that I think the Native Americans nail it better than we do, which is their concept of the trickster. Mm -hmm. There is definitely a trickster element in studying UFOs, and I think everybody who has done this for any length of time would agree with me. Things are always, you think you've got a handle on it, you think you understand the logic and the, the system involved, and then your case will take this sudden, very strange turn. <laughs> yes. 
It is not there to be understood in a normal way, and it's not there to be understood. It's that I keep going back to this phrase that Dean Radin told me about when he was doing, um, well, he still does, doing um, parapsychology research. He said using the instruments and the language we have is like using a fly to kill, use, using a sledgehammer to kill a fly. Yeah, and I think that's maybe what's going on with the UFO thing. We're trying to, we're trying to. You know, capture this fly with a with a with a bag that's about a hundred miles wide, or trying to kill the fly with a you know a fly with a with a hundred ton sledgehammer that nobody can lift really, but they can drag it around a bit. Precisely, it's <laughs> just like the, the the other the other quote that I loved. This is a slight change of subject, but yeah, since changing. we're 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 mentioning reframing the debate, <laughs> I think it is that one of the authors is named Lauren Cutts. Yes. And he said something about disclosure that I laughed so hard I was crying. <laughs> what did he say? I don't remember the exact thing he wrote. He said that the way that we look at disclosure is like saying that you could get out of prison by asking the guards for the keys. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Mine was – yeah, go ahead. I just love that. I, 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 it just blew me away. It's yeah. so perfect. Yeah. You, you're, you're going to somebody that you never trust – to say anything truthful to you and asking them to tell you the truth. And then if they don't tell you the truth in the way you want to hear it, they're covering it up. I never lie, and I always tell the truth. Yeah, exactly. That's what you're dealing with. So it's, you're, you're dealing with a, um, what's that called? You're dealing with a strange loop to begin with. Yes, it's that just, is definitely a loop. <laughs> you can't, uh, it, it's not going to be answered in that way. It's that, that's using something that's completely structured and filled with lies to answer something that's completely unstructured and is a different truth for everybody, for anybody that looks at it. So right. it's, I, I, think, I think the disclosure movement is a huge waste of time. Um, it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen that... I sure you'd agree with this too. If if it does happen, it will, it'll happen by accident, and most people won't even know that it has. It, it, even though a lot of people have argue, actually argued per, persuasively that already has happened, has made no real difference. And that may be true. Yeah. Are you willing to tell the Jay Z night story? I that was the highlight of that dinner. I can only tell you what I know. Okay, could you give us a little? And I, I, we've got. Um, well, we can talk as long as we want, but I've, um, I've only contracted you for another fifteen minutes or so. Okay, so give us a little background because this, this is a fascinating story. Sorry to get back to MUFON, but it's a, it's a. No, that's all right. It's it, it very is relevant, fast, and it, it's also fascinating to me because I happen to live uh, across the county from where Jay Z Knight has her international headquarters in Yelm, Washington. Mm-hmm. And she is a interesting phenomena because she claims, of course, that she channels this, what is it, 30,000 or 40,000-year-old warrior named Ramtha. Right. And Ramtha is a purveyor of, you know, great wisdom and insight into everything. Of course. That's what any, any good cult wants. Uh, precisely. And along the way... This also involved her being interested in UFOs. So it's been, I, I assume the story you want me to tell is about being in her compound? Yes. Okay. And, and how you ended up there, maybe a little bit of background on that. Yes. A couple of years ago, I received an email out of the blue from Dave McDonald telling me that he was going to be in my county 
And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why are you coming here to the Olympia, Washington area? And he says, well, uh, Jay-Z, I ended up communicating with him a couple times by email, and he said that Jay-Z Knight was having a big gathering and to talk about UFOs, and he was sent to speak about UFOs to her and her followers. And I, of course, was thinking, well, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, I've, I've, done a few, <laughs> I've done a few presentations here and there, but no one had bothered to ask me if I would participate or help or anything. So I wanted to be friendly, so I said, well, Dave, when you're all done, maybe we get together, have a beer or a burger or something. And he said that would be nice, so I went on about my business. It gets to be Saturday, which is the big day of the event, and I get an email and then a phone call frantically from Dave McDonald saying that Jay-Z Knight had changed her mind, and she wanted me as the Washington State MUFON representative to come to her compound. So I thought, well, I've never done this before, so (laughs) I put on my MUFON shirt and whatnot, and I drove across the county. And I went through their security, which is quite formidable. And I ended up in there, and I met up with Dave McDonald. And then they walked us out into this room. Well, this room used to be a uh, an exhibition hall for horses. It's an extremely large room. Indoors. Only it's been indoor, completely roofed over, completely floored in like a giant a giant gymnasium floor. And I mean big. And there's several hundred people have literally camped out on the floor who are waiting for this big revelation about UFOs. And when they walked Dave McDonald and I across the floor to this stage area, I thought I was in the movie Rocky. (laughs) They were playing. I forget what they were playing. Some kind of loud music. But these people are just screaming and yelling. You know, I mean, it, so much that it was it was insane. So I went to the back of the room and I sat next to one of her security people. Her inner security people are all these uh, kind of well-built men with shaved heads who are dressed nicely and they all have hidden radios. They talk into their wrists. It's very it's quite impressive. And so I'm sitting next to one of the aides. And Dave McDonald is giving a lecture. Now, you got to picture this room. It's got hundreds of people sitting on the floor who have literally camped out there for I don't know how long, a day or so at least. And on the walls, there are close-up pictures of Jay-Z Knight that are 15 to 20 feet high of, of her striking various candid poses. <laughs> it's It's very peculiar. And then there are a few... Uh, I guess, mystical symbols done in colored lights, like the the Star of Solomon and, you know, whatnot on the walls. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, this is a local phenomenon that people around here are familiar with. People come from all over the world to hear from Jay-Z Knight. And when they get here, they need work. So (laughs) many of them become caregivers and whatnot. You know, that's... That's a job that they can do. And I will tell you that these are very, many of them are very intelligent, very nice people. But they are absolutely dedicated 
to learning and following Jay Z Knight and Ramtha. I mean, they are, they are, they are, they've drunk the Kool Aid. They are in it. <laughs> well, so we go through this big show, and Dave McDonald uh, is does his thing. Finally, he invited me up on the stage, and he and I traded UFO quips, and the crowd asked us questions about various UFO topics. And then we got asked if we wanted to have lunch with her in her residence. You know, like, do you want to see the queen? And I thought, wow, I certainly never imagined this. So I why said, not? hey, why not? So I went. And we were given a very lovely lunch served by uh, servants in a very opulent room, a incredibly over-decorated room. Of course it was. Yes. And, you know, I remember that sitting next to her, she looked at me at one point and said, I'm really not as scary as they say I am, am I? <laughs> and I thought, well, how do I answer this question? And I said, no, you're not. But I will tell you the one thing I am sure of. I have never in my life been next to anybody who projected more pure self-confidence than her by body language i mean by radiating energy however you want to describe it this woman believes in what she is doing mm -hmm. now what that means i don't know i it's not my cup of tea but she's got something powerful going and it has had a profound influence on a lot of people and I am alarmed that she is now in an influential position in MUFON because in that inner circle group, I'm sure that she is the wealthiest and most powerful of all of them. Right. And, you know, I don't know exactly what being in the inner circle means other than that I do know in the past they have selected people for key positions in MUFON from the inner circle. So Jan Harzan can describe all he wants about how being in the inner circle doesn't really mean anything because all it does is give you a few perks in return for your annual donation. But I don't think it's quite that simple. I really don't. And, you know, Robert Heinlein said, I believe a long time ago, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> Is he the one and, that said that, or was uh, was he? He also and, said, uh, "What is it? Ninety ninety five percent of everything is BS." Well, that too. But <laughs> and Bob Dylan said, "Money doesn't talk; it swears." <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry. That was Theodore Sturgeon. That's Sturgeon's law. R wrong uh, science fiction writer. But go well, ahead. God knows, I love Theodore Sturgeon. the The problem with all of this is is that if we were to have Jan Harzan here right now and debate this with him, he would not see anything wrong in embracing Paola Harris's weird investigation, Corey Good or Jay-Z Knight. He would think, he, he really honestly doesn't get why any serious investigator might have some objections to what has been done. And that's the problem. There's no restraints on the system anymore. Mm -hmm. All of the safeties for MUFON are gone. 
anything goes now if it sells. What do you think? Yeah, okay, that, that's that sort of answers the question. Um, what do you think is the future of MUFON, and and what is the future? You know, maybe of of studying this phenomenon. What do you think should be done uh, in addition to what you're doing? Right now, I don't know anything except what I'm doing and what a few other people are doing, which is trying to remain true to your principles and doing honest investigations and exploring whatever opportunities are available. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I don't think right now, I think MUFON is going to continue to be very successful because I don't see any reason to believe that the public is going to stop wanting things like Corey Good offers or Jaime Mossan or, or Stephen Greer or, you know, the more spectacular, the wilder, the, the more unverifiable, the better. And there's a market for that. And as long as there's a market for that and you have business people running MUFON, I think they're going to be successful. Maybe they better change their um, mission statement. They won't. That's true. They won't. They will pretend to be something they are not, a witch that walks like a who. It's a it's an oh, expression a from I see a poem. Okay. From a poem by I think E. E. Cummings, that makes sense. A witch that walks like a who? Exactly. Okay, I understand. I was I was thinking the I was thinking the noun witch, as in you know a witch. No, no, on a no, 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 no. You're talking about the the witch is witch what? There, where, I, I'm I'm kind of getting a little abstract. No, that's fine. I, that's exactly what we need in this field. They're pretending <laughs> to be. They will continue to pretend to be something they are not. Mm-hmm. They will see people like me or you as a bunch of dissatisfied cranks. They will probably portray us this way. I don't really care. Uh, and they will continue to rewrite their own history such that whenever other dedicated MUFON people suddenly take the blinders off and liberate themselves and walk away, they will be immediately written out of the history of MUFON as if they were never there. Well, that's my prediction for the future. Well, that's unfortunate, but I think also you might say, well, who cares then? I mean, that, that they're irrelevant now, and what's relevant is people that have basically left and gone on to do different things. The other thing I worry about here, Jim, is what happens to the four, six, eight thousand people who are members of MUFON that that really this is their only organized way of engaging with research. What's going to happen to those people? I, I feel bad for them. I've met many of them. They're nice, sincere people. Well, they need to start. Uh, pers- they need to start learning how to do their own research. That, and now we're back to where I think people like you and I come in, which is that I'm still all about public outreach. Mm-hmm. I'm still all about trying to get people to answer their own questions. I don't want them to agree with me. I want them to go out and study this phenomena for themselves and not, not just do a knee jerk reaction to whatever the flavor of the day is. Right. You know, the new Corey good or the, the new plaster of Paris mummy from Peru are you kind of proud that you don't know what the hell's going on when people ask you about some of these things? Because at this point, people say, did you hear what so-and-so said? It's like, I don't even know who that is. 
works. Well, there's that too. <laughs> because it doesn't it doesn't seem relevant to me. I mean, you kind of have to keep up on things, but you do. I I try to stay informed. I I think that's important. I I think there's a value to just basically putting your head down and working on it yourself and then coming back and telling everybody what you found and having some sort of a hopefully civilized debate about whether, you know, what is it? Uh, peer review and ufology now is 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 uh, posts on social media. Yes, and, unfortunately, you know, and the I think the peer review at this point should be um, quiet and disorganized, and the 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 good work will find its level. I think I would hope that. Well, I hope that there's going to be more ad hoc uh, investigative groups, such as the group that took down the uh, the Roswell slides. Did you know I you was know, in that group? I know you were, and I, and I was absolutely Although I didn't stunned. do anything. And, I, and I, I, I wanted desperately to include this in, in this show that we're doing right now, and I, I think you'll love this anecdote. I told you about it in my email. But when I realized that I was sitting across from you and from other people who were involved in the blue blurry lines takedown of the Roswell slides, I realized I was in August company <laughs> and – out of respect, while I was well, talking Miles to was you, there. he was more involved. I, I went into my wallet and I took out the plastic ID card that I had that identified me as a member of the MUFON special assignments team. Because although I resigned my directorship, I had agreed at the request of Chase Kletsky that I should stay on as a member of the SAT team and the STAR team and, and all of that. But when I was sitting there and I realized that I was talking to all of you, everything came to a head because in the background, I had now digested Kevin Randall's interview of Jan Harzan, and I had heard all about Jay-Z Knight being in the inner circle and the fact that John Ventry is not really gone because he's still in the inner circle, and it, it had all been percolating. And at that moment while I was talking to you, I took that card out of my uh, wallet, and I was sitting there folding it repeatedly like you you do with plastic cards until it would break into pieces. Mm-hmm. And my my last act when we all said goodnight, leaving Pepper's Restaurant in Roswell, was to take the pieces and throw them in a garbage can. <laughs> I didn't know you were doing that. And in fact, I, I didn't know hear you it didn't. Till, yeah, I didn't hear it till later, and I've. I, I applauded it. Uh, I wished I'd known you were doing that, but it's no, a very personal it was thing. better. It was better the way it was. Yeah, but it had it had to be, and I need to get to learn how to be a more of an independent thinker. Uh, I think you already were that way, there, Jim. And it's just it just kind of everything that's happened in the last uh, couple of years, and especially the last couple of months, have just probably thrown it into sharp focus. And yes, I- that's correct. Uh, a lot of people have read what you've written recently. These couple of um, one on the move on uh, uh, one you, on my resignation yeah. and the other one on the resignation of Robert Powell. That's right. Um, I'm seeing chatter on this a lot, in, especially in the last day or so. Um, so I think it, you're already having an effect, and that's good. So I'm gl- glad to have you on this show talking about it. And uh, I'll post this here in a. In a couple of days if people want to get involved with your group or at least find out what's going on uh, where do they go online my other website is still active which is jamesclarksonufo.com 
or the most direct way is to uh, hit my email, which is UFO reality at comcast.net. Or of course you can find me on Facebook. I, I have to admit, I spend more time on Facebook than I would like, but so do as everybody else. Yeah, I do too. You know, you, well, when you talk about trying to get this message out and to connect with people, you kind of have to. Yes. But it's hard because you never know who exactly you're affiliating with. No, you, know? you don't. It's it, it takes a while to kind of learn that. I don't know if the government, I don't know if the, the guy in the NSA knows what to think of me. Because I, <laughs> I've got all kinds of friends who, if you put them down in in a room together, half of them would hate the other half. Because they're left-wing, right-wing, they're all yeah. over the place. Yeah, that's exactly what my friend base is like. And I that's the main reason why I don't really post anything political because it just within 5 seconds it turns into it turns into a, a death match. Yes. So and to what end? No, not none really. People have forgotten that we're all Americans. They just they just exactly. want to fight. That's the yeah, that's the thing that everybody's forgotten that really breaks my heart. I was I believe and I was taught that the most American thing you can ever say is I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will fight to the death for your right to say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what made America special was when we actually honored that and when we thought that everybody had basic rights and that maybe we should all try and be tolerant of each other. Yes. But and, that, and that, that's what's lacking. Yeah. And, and compromising. Yeah. That, that's a tough one. How can you even live and not compromise with anybody? If you exactly. don't do some compromise, everybody's going to hate you. <laughs> and if you if you claim to serve the people of the United States, then you have to make that your first priority. And your party is somewhere way down the list mm -hmm. after the people and your country. There, there's my – there, I've gotten on my soapbox. <laughs> I don't think many people are going to disagree with you, especially people listening to this show. Uh, on my show, the guest gets to pick the music that gets played at the end of the show. What would you like to hear? Or oh what would you like God. to have have there? And you can tell me later if you want, and I'll just edit it in. <laughs> wow, what a great thing to choose from. Uh, I like the Disclosure song from that's on YouTube. <laughs> Which one? I haven't heard that one. Oh, you have to hear that. I'm trying to remember who did that. It's um, Steven Universe. <laughs> No, no, no. Okay. I'm just I just put in disclosure song. There's a female there's a female singer who does it. You need it's called Need to Know, the UFO ah. disclosure song. There's my choice. By and the singer's name is Cherish Alexander. It has great lyrics and a good sound. It's fairly contemporary. Okay. Well, we'll put this up and uh you can either stay on here and listen. Well, you've already heard it. Um, I've already heard it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll run the song right now. And um, thank you so much, uh, Jim, for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a genuine pleasure. And I hope we can work on something together in the future. It sounds like we're kind of going down parallel paths here. It really does. And, and it's a, uh, you know, getting to meet you when you wrote Project Beta, which is such an important story. You know, everybody needs to study that book. 
that is I, I'm I'm honored. And so thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Well, likewise, and we'll hear we'll here we're gonna hear need to know and I will talk to you very soon, Jim. Thanks again so much. Thank you. Have All a right. good evening. You too. Bye now. Bye bye. All right, thanks for listening. See you soon.